I would invite you to open your Bibles this evening again to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 7, a tragedy follows victory as Israel is corporately found guilty of not devoting unto the Lord those things which the Lord demanded Israel devote to him. This led to their subsequent defeat. And then the Lord's prescription in rooting out the sinner, how to make the camp clean once again. Joshua chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon on the side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. Then they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about 3,000 men went up from the people. <clears throat> but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men. For they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face, before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. For they have taken even some of the accursed things, and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it in among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you any more, unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Get up, sanctify the people. And say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst. O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. 
in the morning. Therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to the families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. Then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the, transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel." So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the clan of Judah, and he took the family of the Zarhites, and he brought the family of the Zarhites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. Then he brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was taken. And Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold, Weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them, and I took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent, with the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent, and the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua, and to all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua... And all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones, still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come to you tonight, and we find before us, surely, a difficult text not just because it is sorrowful in its theme, that out of such great victory, a man would act with such wickedness towards the Lord, but to bring upon himself and his family and the whole nation guilt. Guilt regarding your word and the clear directive to devote to you, those things which belong to you. Lord, our hearts are inclined to do that which is evil. And so we would ask that we would not only be guided by your word as an instruction for how we shall live, but that we would be jealous for your glory above the coveting of the treasures of this world. And so make us a people 
wholly devoted to you. We pray in your name. Amen. In my little introduction that I'll pin each week, I guess I'm not pinning them, I'm typing them. Recently I signed my middle school Bible survey class the responsibility not just to read and answer questions, but in an effort to make sure they do them, to turn them in, one of my pupils decided it would be fun to type it up. Very impressed, and it was one of the only assignments I could actually read, which is good. It's good to know uh, the Word of God and to be able to not only understand it, but as we see in the case here of Achan, a longing, a jealousy uh, to fulfill what God commands. So in that introduction, I wrote that Israel learns through harsh but fair righteous judgment that you cannot devote yourself to that which God has devoted to destruction and you cannot take for yourself that which belongs to the Lord and live. Those who worship idols become like them. This lesson Israel has learned before, and they will learn it here again. And instead, we are to rightly consecrate ourselves to the Lord. God, in his wrath, is just in condemning any. But God does not always work in wrath. There are times where God passes over our sins. And where do those land? They land firmly upon Christ, if we are forgiven. That lesson we learned this evening, two points that I want to make. The first, holding on to the accursed things. And then second, devoting oneself unto destruction, which, as an aside, is what every sinner has done. You and I are fully culpable. There is none righteous, no, not one. Let's look at the first point. Holding on to the accursed things. The sins of Israel are really the sins and inclination of all men. Men, having fallen all together in the sins of our first parents and in Adam, our covenant head, are all lost in sin and destruction. We call this original sin. And so each and every one of us is inclined, or the in vogue word of today, oriented towards that which does not glorify God. Read it this morning. I'll read it again. Romans 3. What then are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. And so Paul concludes that section. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many? All. All men are under the curse, are sinners, and there is no age requirement. 
You know what I mean? You go to the park and there's a roller coaster. You must be this tall. Took me a long time (laughs) to get to that line. You must be this tall to ride the ride. No, no, no. We are conceived. We do not mature into sinfulness. We are conceived in sin. And so we, having been thrust into a state of misery and death, not only in Adam, but also all actual sins which flow from that original corruption are rightly and could be judged guilty. And not only are we guilty before God is judged, but in our lives we are predisposed to love, long for, and go back to that which is wretched, that which is passing away. And even though we may taste and see the goodness and loveliness of Christ, there still remains for each of us a war, a battle in our hearts. The sins of Israel are not particular to Israel. They are the inclination of all sinful hearts, every man, woman, and child. Israel had been called in chapter 6, having been given the victory by God The spoils which he said are mine, they were his. God will not share his glory with another. There are times where God does allow Israel and even we to delight in the fruit of victory. We see this even when men, women, and children are brought into the kingdom. We delight in the spoils of claiming for Christ those who once belonged to darkness. And they are... Devoted unto him. These accursed things have been remade, claimed, consecrated for Christ. Israel had been called, as you remember in chapter 6, to commit everything to destruction except those things, the accursed things, the silver, the gold, the treasure, unto the Lord and to bring them into the temple. Now this is a sanctifying call. And it is sanctifying in this way. The temptation of taking for oneself, even if you possessed great wealth, those things which God said are mine was there. And Achan was not immune to it. And so we find at the beginning of Joshua chapter 7, that sin which brought shame and guilt into the whole camp. Now you may say, my sins belong only to myself. And yet there is an element of covenant community and the guilt even of an individual that brings corruption, discord to the whole body. That principle is enduring, though there are things found in Joshua chapter 7 that are not. God does not come to your session directly and say, I know of someone who has done a thing. Bring the whole church before you, and I will tell you exactly who that man, woman, or child is. That has not happened, and it will not happen in the life of Reformation OPC. That age wherein God spoke directly as he did to men like Joshua and Moses has passed, not even Paul or others commune with God in that way 
For as our confession says, as did the passing of the nation of Israel go, so too the unique way in which God revealed them, himself to them. Even the ways in which laws are now implemented are distinct except from, as our confession would say, the general equity of those laws. But this was not a civil offense. This was a religious treasonous betrayal. This was robbing from God. It was a kind of hybrid in which the whole society of Israel is affected, but through a blasphemous act on the part of one man, that man Achan. We read of it because that prologue is important to what happens next. After Achan steals these things, Israel goes to Ai in order to spy out the land, a small skirmish. And Joshua rightly expecting more of the same kinds of victories because he knew that God would deliver that land and those nations into Israel's hand. But here is a principle the Old Testament reminds us of, and it makes us long for the New Testament. Only that nation, that servant of God that is blameless, is able to achieve ultimate victory over the enemies of God and his people. This defeat, just 36 men, I don't say that in a cavalier fashion, because the whole nation is guilty. And for just 36 men is in fact, in and of itself, a gracious, hard, severe mercy. It is the manner in which God gets the attention of his servant Joshua. And as they are there, they are defeated. And not only do 36 men die, but what we read in verse 5 is this. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and they became like water. They were afraid. And not just afraid. They were utterly terrified. Weak in the knees. They fell down in their fear. And then Joshua, verse 6, mourns and laments because he realizes that something is wrong. This is not an action of divine favor working for them. Something has happened and Joshua rightly comes before the Lord in a lament. What is happening? And God says, get up. And I'm going to tell you. Someone has sinned. But he doesn't just say someone, does he? Israel has sinned. And who is Israel? It is the whole nation. And so we learn a lesson in Joshua chapter 7 that we learn throughout the first five books of the Bible that ultimately the nation of Israel is not up to the task of fulfilling the call to take dominion of the nations, of the land, and to ultimately fulfill world dominion. This nation cannot do it. And though she has been given the law and great leaders, even her leaders are broken. They are men with feet of clay. That the only way in which the land that God has promised to his covenant people can be gotten, can be conquered, is that there is no sin that violates the holiness of God either in the people or in the place in which they are called to dwell. 
And so the question comes before us, who is up to the task? And this is the lesson time and time and time again. And this is why we speak of the law as a tutor, a teacher. And in its usefulness, in this regard, it drives us to the one who is sufficient to do that which Israel could not do. The true Israel, the Son of God, the chosen servant, Christ himself, who will devote himself In fact, Christ was tempted as Achan was. Satan knew what Christ was after. And even as Achan went into that city, and there on the rubble amidst the dead bodies, he saw great treasure. But what had God promised him? In fact, what we read of Achan later in this chapter is that he was a man that had great possessions. He already had what he needed. And he had the promises of God. He had just achieved victory. And this at times is the danger of victory. So in these past two years, we as a congregation have grown mightily. And God has blessed us richly. And it would be very easy for us to assume that as God has done, he will do again because we're doing it right, right? We're we're finally hitting our stride. And what we begin to do in light of the rich blessings of God is to neglect the fountain of those blessings and think too highly of ourselves. And instead of treasuring the grace of God. We disdain the the glorious power and might and grace of God, and we treasure the stuff of earth, even ourselves. This is a dangerous inclination. And so it leads us to this point at the end of my first point. You cannot conquer an enemy that you cherish. You cannot speak against the things that you love. This is why pastors must be vigilant. Fathers, mothers, those who rule over and teach and seek to guide others to be holy in life. Else you neglect an area in which people need to be discipled. And if you cannot conquer that enemy... We see what happens when the enemy conquers you. Sin sows lust for the wrong things. It sows fear directed to the wrong men. It grabs defeat from the jaws of victory. And it brings discord to the whole body of Christ. In fact, what God will do in chapter 7 is arrest the attention of Israel that was grappling with the fear of those in Ai, and he will teach them to fear him yet again. Which is why the punishment is what it is. And it seems harsh for us, yet we are not God. We do not have his mind, his wisdom, and the insight into the human soul. Not just men as a whole, but that man in particular. 
And so that leads me then to my second point, devoting oneself unto destruction. In fact, the sin of Achan was the sin of Adam. It was laying hold of a treasure that was a destructive force thinking that would be good for him. Was Adam wealthy? Yes. And not only was Adam wealthy in the stuff of earth, but he had an innocent heart to enjoy it to boot. What a gig. Sinless perfection. Now, free to sin, yet righteous, given dominion, a new bride, and lots of potential. And here comes Satan, and what does he do? He doesn't promise him something that doesn't appeal. He promises to Adam and to his wife the very thing they were taught to desire. But on God's terms, glory, wealth, honor, to become like God himself, but again, not on Satan's terms, on God's terms. When Achan sees those things, he sees what? Where did those treasures come from? From Babylon itself. A nation that God would have, through his servant Israel, eventually overcome had they been obedient. And this ties into another thing. If you treasure the things that are devoted to destruction, you become destructed yourself. What does Israel become in their rebellion, as we see in the book of Revelation? They become Babylon. They become the spoils of pagan wars. They themselves are destroyed, but that's future. But we see the heart that gets you in trouble. The Lord here, in light of Joshua's pleading, explains to him what happened. He then calls the people together so that they may be sanctified. Sanctified here refers to the process by which God points out the sin that is in the camp. And it is no different even in your heart. This is what God does. This is what God does on Sunday morning. In fact, we did it this morning as I read from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. He runs down a list of things. Adultery, covetousness, and you're going, okay, this tribe, this father, this son. You're going down the list in order to get to the point of why there is corruption, and this is what we often do. We don't want to show up when God says, let's go through the list. Why does God go through that list here? What is the whole purpose of this? It is to bring judgment against sin, but for what purpose? The same reason you go to the dermatologist. There's something, a little tiny thing, you may not even be able to see it, but a trained eye can point it out. That little spot between your toes, on the back of your elbow, is producing these cells that will destroy every internal organ you possess. And if you do not have it cut off and thrown out and cast away, it will kill the whole body. And no one says, well, actually, you know what? I like that little freckle. I'm going to 
I'm going to put a little shrine there for it. And I'm, going to, I'm just going to love it. It's not going to kill me. I'm going to name it. I'm going to domesticate it. I'm going to treasure it. And I'm going to say, you know what? 99.9% of me is good. So I'm good. And this is how we treat sin. And this is what has got us into the problem today. As a people, oftentimes what we say is there are certain things that are inclinations, there are orientations, there is this cancer, but so long as we do not assent to the fact that it is there, we are well. No. What does God see? There is a reason why God says, bring them before me. How did they do this? They are brought to the temple or the tabernacle. And there God directs Joshua to point that man out. Can you see Achan? Oh, no. Joshua rose early, verse 16. The tribe of Judah. Okay, it's a big tribe. He brings the tribe of Judah. Then the family of the Zarhites. Uh Uh-oh. They're narrowing in. And then Zabdi. That's, they're getting closer. Closer and closer and closer. Until Achan himself. And look at what Joshua says. My son. Joshua is older than any in the camp. He is the only one left. That is acting in this role that is of the first generation. And he looks at Achan and he says, My son, it is fatherly judgment. It is fatherly pleading. I beg you. And what does Achan do? Does he hide? No, he confesses. And in this, he is exemplary, but the offense has been committed. What would God, is he worthy of glory if God came to Adam? Adam, you have brought sin and corruption into this world, but Lord, I'm really sorry. Well, okay, if you're really sorry. Is that a godly thing to do? In fact, the only way our sins are passed over, that is, we do not go to hell for the things that we have done, is that they are laid upon Christ. Now, We are not told of the eternal state of Achan. And the eternal state of Achan is not the point of this passage. The point of the passage is, how is corruption rooted out of the body? And it is only when the sins that plague the body are fully taken care of, fully expunged and wiped away. In fact, it is difficult for us, even in Joshua chapter 7, to not want to move, and rightly so, not abusing the immediate text, but to think, how is it possible for a whole nation to be righteous? I hate to say it, guys, but if this were us, we would have done the same. Someone would have, and I'm not pointing to anyone in particular, Maybe you say, if I had been in the garden, I wouldn't have sinned. Yeah, right. That's not the point of that text either, is it? To boast. And in fact, if you say, I would not have done that, 
you probably are the one that would have done that. Because you're not standing upon the mercy of God, but even exalting in yourself. Achan confessed. He says exactly what he did. He did. Verse 20. Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold. A lot. I took it. Perhaps he thought no one would have known. That's why he buried it in the ground. Here is a man who did not operate with a heart of jealousy for the Lord, who thought that through the spoils that he could find in Jericho, he would be wealthy, and he traded immediate wealth for what? The wealth promised to him by God. And so what happens? Achan and his family and all that he owns are stoned by the nation, not one, but the whole nation. For he sinned not only against God, but against the people as he brought corruption there. And then all were burned with fire. And there in that place, another kind of memorial stone pile was laid. Earlier in Joshua, a memorial of mercy and consecration. Here, a memorial of consecration through judgment. That God is to be feared both by his acts of mercy and deliverance, but also judgment. We confess that we have died with Christ but we have also been raised with him. That act of Christ upon the cross, we say, is that place where mercy and justice kiss. They meet together. And though these are two distinct pillars or heaps here in Joshua, they come together in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. For at the cross, Christ was judged for us. So that we, who were once accursed, devoted to destruction, might be reclaimed. And this is what God was teaching Israel all the way. You are mine. Do not devote yourself to this world. And even in this hard act of judgment, in of this, Calvin writes a good bit, and I would encourage you, You can find it free online. I've got it here in my notes, but tonight I don't want to take the time to read it. Go there if you're struggling with the reality of judgment. Here is what I'll say about that subject. I'll say what Paul says in Romans 9. Shall the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? God sees what we do not see, and he judges rightly in all things. God is right, and he is good. And he only condemns to death those who are worthy of condemnation. All of God's righteous acts are therefore worthy of remembrance. Children, do you know what I mean? Do you remember? I remember as a kid. I remember those acts of judgment. (laughs) Sometimes I look back and I go, I deserved a lot more of them. And that is the place where we must go, where our fear of God and his punishment 
And the mercy that it shows to us in his son is greater than our love for the world. What is God teaching Israel? To fear him. To devote themselves to him. To understand that the wages of sin really is death. And in this, God is faithful. And tonight at the table of our Lord Jesus Christ, we remember what? We remember the death of Christ until he comes. Why the death of Christ? I've said it before, but it is worth repeating. Because it is through the death of Christ that our deaths need not be for our own sin. Which is why one day if we die in Christ Jesus, we will be raised again. In fact, our hope is in the resurrection. And in Christ we learn this. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God.